Welcome to Ex Libris, the podcast that, with the help of the greatest writers around, champions libraries and bookshops. These are our society's safe spaces, particularly libraries. They are palaces for the people, free of charge, where everyone is welcome and nobody judged. Yet they are in peril and closing like never before. My name's Ben Holden. I'm a writer and producer and, more to the point, fed up of this state of affairs. So, during each episode of Ex Libris, I will be meeting a great author at a library or an independent bookshop of their choice, somewhere that has become resonant for them. And, I hope, after you listen to this episode, we'll feel special to you too. So this week's location has actually just afforded me a shelter from the storm. See, it's one of those grim, wet days here in West London. Proper cats and dog stuff out there. But I've stepped inside a concrete oasis. I'm in Roehampton Library. It's a brutalist beacon, nestled just around the corner from a GP surgery, church and youth centre, within a very lively housing estate. It was chosen by one of Britain's best-selling and most beloved authors, Jacqueline Wilson with over 100 books to her name, and over 40 million copies of them sold, Jacqueline has fired young imaginations like few others alive. She is a former children's laureate and was appointed a dame in 2008. Jacqueline has chosen Roehampton Library partly as it's where her good friend Stuart Wynne works. I'm excited to sit down with them here in a back office. Hopefully we can walk off with a few leaves taken out of their books. Jacqueline, Stuart, thank you so much You're for welcome. joining Ex Libris. Jacqueline, why Roehampton Library? Can we describe the place, paint the picture for our, our listeners? It's not the most esoteric and quiet and sort of leather-bound volumes-type library at all. It's a community library on the edge of one of the very biggest council estates in London, the Alton Estate, which won, goodness knows, how many awards. It's a most interesting estate. It's lively with everything (laughs) that 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 entails. I think this is a fantastic library. It wasn't one that I went to as a child because I lived a little bit further away in Kingston, but I saw the Alton Estate growing up changing the whole atmosphere of from a sleepy little almost country village to the vibrant, strangely noisy place that mm. it is today. And I just love the idea that as well as the usual chicken shops and little supermarkets that are all along this parade, there is the library. And it's a fantastic library. It was open in 1961, was it, Stuart? And yet it's modernised itself. It's so modern that I was only hearing today that they've recently had a drag artist talk for the children. How current is that? (laughs) And they do so many different activities here for adults, for children. It's so colourful, it's so warm, it's so well decorated. To me, it's everything a library should be. And in a community where Possibly there isn't the money or the inclination to have shelves of books all over people's flats. 
fantastic that they still could get introduced to whatever books they want. Yes, and I've been past it several times and always wanted to come in and immediately entering today, it feels like a haven, a sanctuary. There's a church, there's a youth club just around the corner here, but this feels like a real hub, Stuart. How did you come to work here? I came to work here in 2009 after having previously worked as a casual Saturday assistant at Southfield's Library, which is, is one of the next closest libraries to here to them, Putney. It is a great space. I love working here. I love working in libraries. It is the one thing I wanted to do from when I was in primary school to when I went to secondary school. The first thing I wanted to do at secondary school was be an assistant library assistant in the school library, but it was flooded when I first got to school, so oh, no. it's a way agonizing just waiting for it to open and I went in there met a wonderful librarian called Wendy Sparrowhawk who I still talk to now and we send each other postcards from Hardy's Dorset and Bronte's in Yorkshire it's, it, it's wonderful it is a super place to work come into everyday different challenges not necessarily always about the books I thought it would be but helping people with the community directions newspapers internet access photocopying it does so much more than the traditional twin set post shush attitude. It's completely changed. And how did you guys strike up your friendship? <laughs> In a rather unlikely place. Yeah. Stuart and I are both very lucky. We've had successful kidney transplants. Oh, wow. And we met up in the post-transplant unit when you have to keep going back again and again and again, particularly in the first year or so, just to check you're not rejecting your kidney. And they do wonderful jobs. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for them, but they are dreary places. <laughs> and you need to take a book with you because you wait for hours. And I noticed that there was this young man vaguely opposite me and he had his head in a book and I had my book. I would glance at him occasionally simply because I'm always interested if I see somebody reading. Stuart was glancing at me and I had no idea that when we'd sensed that it was more or less my turn on the list to go through, he said, shyly, I'd just like you to know that I really love your books and they're very popular in the library where I work. And I was amazed because, you know, I wasn't looking my best, shall we? <laughs> I was still very sore with a cushion clutched over my tummy, no makeup, hair sticking up, whatever. But we started chatting. And then after we'd both gone off to see our various different doctors, nurses, etc., we joined up again. And then we started talking about children's books. And I pride myself on knowing a lot about children's books. And I've been living twice as long, more than twice as long as Stuart. But he knows far more than me, and it was incredible. And in fact, my partner and my friend had their car to whiz us home, and we gave Stuart a lift. And the other two didn't get a word in edgeways. No. We were just bonding with our favourites and discussing things. And then sometimes we got lucky and we were having treatment on the same day. And then we visited each other, and we've been pals ever since. Wow. I wasn't expecting that answer. What an amazing answer. You see, you yeah. can, you yeah. can yeah. find friendship anywhere. <laughs> what were the books that you two bonded over? Lots of authors, then. female authors, which are sort of don't get much reputation now. They've sort of been forgotten about. Maybe people like 
Jean Rhys, Stella Gibbons, Dorothy Whipple, the children's authors like uh, E. Nesbitt. And Noel Stretfield. I'm particularly delighted because Noel Stretfield opened this very library. Oh. And Stuart mm-hmm. has a wonderful photograph of the very, very much younger Noel Stretfield with a group of the most tidy, well-scrubbed children I've ever seen in my life. And there is a plaque as you come into the library saying that she opened it here. And as Nell Stretford has always been one of my all-time favourite authors, I just love that connection. You mentioned the libraries growing up, Jacqueline. Yes. Where were the libraries that were special for you? And Um, I know you wanted to write from a very, very early age. I did, definitely. from. I know it was six because I had to have my tonsils out and I was told that the doctor trying to make conversation said, and what do you want to do when you grow up, little girl? And I said, I want to be an author, which was a strange reply in those days. But I love books. I love books before I could read, just looking at the pictures and making up my own stories. I came from a council estate too. We didn't have much money. I only had three or four books throughout my little girlhood. So my mum actually joined me to Kingston Library when I was six. And in those long ago days, young children and picture books weren't so much included in libraries, but she did get permission for me to go. And Kingston Library, which is still going strong now, although very sadly, the beautiful room in which the children's library was, and I still have a vivid picture of it in my eye, is now one of the computer rooms. (laughs) And the actual children's library is in a glorified porter cabin, which... It rather shows the way nowadays we put the very best and most precious things in the precious room and things that perhaps aren't as high a priority in some people's minds in the glorified porter cabin, but that's me just being mischievous. (laughs) But I loved Kingston Library. I went there every week during the school holidays. As soon as I was able to travel by myself, I went practically every day to the library. I just liked it as a place to hang out, but I borrowed armfuls of books throughout my childhood. By the time I was 11, I was given special permission to actually use the adult library too. But under supervision, I had to show my books. So I, you know, no Lolita or Ladies Chatterley for me sort of thing. But I just loved both places. And I joined the school library too. And until I was actually able to earn my own money and start to buy books, I mean, libraries just nurtured me, kept me going. The thing I particularly liked was that in my own home, there were very popular books like the James Bond books or Hamadini's books or big sort of blockbustery type books that my parents did read. But apart from an untouched set of Dickens, there were no classics. There was no sort of modern literary novels that wasn't anything that interested my parents. Now, obviously, I read just for sheer fun and pleasure a lot of the time, But having access to the library, it did make me take out some of the classics that I'd maybe just heard mentioned. I mean, some I put back the next day thinking, no, not for me, but some I persevered with. And in a way, truthfully, my library 
gave me more of an education than attending secondary school did. And I just think that the idea nowadays that so many libraries have closed or under threat or they're looked on as a very low priority in a council spending, um, I think is very sad. Mm. It's awful to think that there may be budding Jacqueline Wilsons out there <laughs> who won't have the same opportunities. But thankfully they will at Roehampton, at least. Certainly oh, yes. they will. And how do you manage having revisited and looked through your books in preparation for this, but also having read some with my own children, I'm always amazed how you're very prolific, but each book has the same fresh child's eye view and wonder and rhythm. How do you maintain, after such an illustrious career and so many novels, how do you keep that child's eye Um, view, do you think? I think it's something that you just have. I'm recently reading a proof copy of another biography of E. Nesbitt, and there's quite a long quote from her that says that the way that you write about children, I mean, basically she was saying you not only have to put yourself in their shoes, but you have to remember exactly how it feels and how you can get so upset, you can get so over the moon with excitement over something really quite trivial. And although times change and children's interests change, their emotions don't change. And I think I can remember so vividly everything that happened to me before I was about 14. Whereas ask me what I was doing exactly two years ago, I would struggle, I really would. And so it's just something that comes easily to me in that... I would have thought it would be a very shrewd move because a lot of children have grown up reading my books because I've been around such a long time. And I know that if I wrote adult books, there might well be an audience. But I just couldn't write about 20-somethings or 30-somethings. I just couldn't get into that sort of head. I couldn't write about a woman my age. I specialise in children and I'm not going to change now. And... You also leap around from different periods. And obviously, Tracy Beaker is now a mum herself. Yes, um, I thought that that was too good a chance to miss. But you see, I don't do it from Tracy's point of view. It's from her daughter Jessie's point of view. And your new novel, Dancing the Charleston, is a period novel. But again, the same rules presumably apply whatever the period, whether it's today's children or back in the 20s or whenever, in terms of the preoccupations and the sorts of again, rhythms that you're tapping into, it doesn't matter. I love, or does it? I think children do feel the same way about things. However, the further back in time you go, the more you can get away with in that if I were to write about a modern child now being incredibly cruelly treated and kept in a cupboard and even beaten by a stepfather, say, this would be very controversial and very difficult and very hard to get across in a way that wasn't too frightening or too unpleasant. Stick it back in Victorian times. <laughs> and somehow, because we're even children who might not have read Dickens have seen Dickens adaptations, we're used to that. It somehow doesn't seem quite as shocking or, or as immediate. And children can feel great sympathy for these characters, but I don't think it traumatises them the way it would with modern children. And for Dancing the Charleston, which is a joy to do because I've always liked the 20s, I found that that in particular, that first 
real exciting age when suddenly all the slight stuffiness of the Victorians sort of just moved on through the Edwardian age and then suddenly we're in this mad jazz age. And yet I also wanted to show that as well as a few bright things leaping around doing all sorts of controversial modern things, there were also your ordinary folk, 95% of people just pottling along doing the same old things. So I wanted to show the difference between those two worlds. And yet I don't really go into any of the major events in the 1920s because I don't think a child of 10 would really notice them. They'd only notice their own home, their neighbours' homes. So it's easier in a way. You don't have to tackle great political issues or or the social injustices. You can just show that one family is poor and another is rich, but you don't really have to do anything too much about it. You're just experiencing it all through the eyes of a child. Yeah, and those things never change as well, those touchstones. And I think children also, they have a freshness about their viewpoint because it's very difficult. The first thing you lose a best friend. It's as if nobody anywhere has ever experienced the torment or the first time a 13-year-old falls passionately in love. This is a whole new thing for you and it just seems impossible that anybody could have ever gone through that. And I think that's what makes it so exciting to write for young people. You must still find such joy from those little faces when you're reading at an event, for instance, after this, you'll be reading here to kids, local kids. It must be magical for it you. It is magical, well, as long as they don't <laughs> fidget too much, <laughs> throw apple cores at me. No, it, it is magical. And it's one of the things that I like most. But I do think you have to be literally in two minds if you are a writer, particularly a children's writer, because a lot of the time you're at home and it's just you and your notebook or you and your computer and you're in your own little bubble. But then also most children's writers now are required to get out there to do events in lovely libraries like this, in bookshops, in literary festivals. And then you've got to try and have a bit of razzmatazz and a few not literal magic tricks up your sleeve, but something to keep them awake. It's quite hard work, but when it comes off, it's fantastic. And when you're writing, as you say, in, the, in those private moments when you're doing the work, are you inhabiting a space similar to the young girl who was in the library, do you think, in terms of your consciousness or where you're finding these stories? And you've written so many and they're still flying out, you know, as fresh as ever. Is there a link, do you think, still think, to that imagination that was sparked in the library? One time I was lucky enough to have an exhibition put on about my work in the Seven Stories in Newcastle, which is the sort of centre for children's literature. And they consulted with me about the way that I wanted it done. And I suddenly thought about the way I was in my bedroom as a child daydreaming with my small shelf of books, a few library books, my notebook and pen. And that was my life then. And I wanted that to be at the beginning of the exhibition so that similar type children could go in and see that it was a small, very modest bedroom. But this is what 
was special to me. And then after you went through the exhibition and various different books were featured and there were kind of novelty things about the television series of Tracy Beaker and the Hetty Featherworld, then at the end they had photographs that went right across one wall of part of my bedroom now with all the bookshelves. And I have a rather swish chaise long. But basically, it's exactly the same. It's somewhere to rest, to daydream. I had a, a notebook and pen and an old typewriter that I gave to the exhibition to show that I'm still exactly the same person. A hell of a lot more grey hairs and wrinkles, but that's still the same process. This is a little extract from a book called The Illustrated Mum. And it's about a, an unfortunate little girl called Dolphin who has a very insecure life with an extraordinary mum. But Dolphin worships her mum. And Dolphin isn't that great at school at all. And like many similar children, she's picked on by some of the others. And she decides, even though she's not a good reader, in fact, she finds reading a big struggle, a place of refuge might be the school library. And she meets up with the librarian, Mr. Harrison, who was youngish and fat and funny. He had very short springy hair like fur and brown beady eyes, and he often wore a jumper. He was like a giant teddy bear, but without the growl. He's very kind to Dolphin, and he tells her to make herself at home. I wandered around the shelves, picking up this book and that book, turning over the pages for the pictures. I could read, sort of, but I hated all those thick wadges of print. The words all wiggled on the page and wouldn't make any kind of sense. I looked to see if Mr Harrison was watching me, but he was deep in his paper. I knelt down and poked my way through the picture books for little kids. There was a strange, slightly scary one with lots of wild monsters. Marigold would have loved to turn them into a big tattoo. I liked a bright, happy book too, about a mum and a dad. The colours glowed inside the neat lines of the drawing. I traced round them with my finger. I tried to imagine what it would be like living in a picture book world where monsters are quelled by a look and you feel safe back in your own bed and you have a spotty mum and a stripy dad with big smiles on their pink faces and they make you laugh. What are you reading? Nothing, I said, shoving both books back on the shelf quickly. But it's a little boy called Owly Morris, you know, horrid nickname because he wears very big, thick glasses. And he's another sad little soul. But this is my way of making Dolphin and Owly make friends, bonding over the books. And Dolphin promises not to call him Owly anymore because he doesn't like it. And he says, don't call me that. It's not my name. I thought about it. OK, Oliver. Thank you, Dolphin. They're calling me Bottlenose now. I don't know why. What's wrong with my nose, I said, rubbing it. It's not too big and it doesn't have a funny bump. Bottlenose Dolphin. It's a particular type of dolphin, right? The sort you see performing. Owly made high-pitched dolphin squeaks. So they whistle and squeak, and Mr Harrison has a kindly word with them. And then, like any true librarian, he says, Here, 
Seeing that you're both interested in dolphins, try reading about them. He found us a big book from the non-fiction section and put it in front of us. Big pictures of different dolphins alternated with chunks of text. I looked carefully at the pictures. Oliver read the words. It was quite companionable. So they make friends. And I think that's another wonderful thing about libraries. Whether you're a sad little kid who hasn't got any friends, whether you're an elderly person who's a bit lonely and doesn't have anybody to talk to at home, whether you're a young mum with a toddler and you're worn out and you've lost touch with all your work colleagues, whether you're a middle-aged woman whose marriage is broken up, libraries are better than shops because you don't need money to go in them and you've got companionship all around you and smiley faces of librarians hopefully and they're fantastic places agreed and i love the fact that we can hear the sound of children <laughs> yes, through the window here in roehampton while you're talking and they are our society's inherently kind non-judgmental places anyone and everyone is welcome you walk into a library whoever you are you're treated exactly the same and you will find whatever it is that you're looking for not just books obviously Stuart but all sorts of other services or ideas it must be very rewarding I know it must also be very challenging at times but quite fun and hugely rewarding job Oh, yes. Both of those, whether it's finding a book someone's requested or you can recommend a book. It doesn't happen very often, unfortunately, but when you find a book and they come back and they said, yes, I've enjoyed it. Or you help someone who's not very IT savvy and you help them, whether it's printing a boarding pass or doing an attachment or scanning something. It feels so good. You know, you do very little good these days to help one another and to come to work each day to my job and to feel that achievement and to help people. And they appreciate it. And they're so thankful. You get hugs sometimes. And if you're very lucky, you might get chocolate at Christmas or something. (laughs) But it is wonderful to have that. Even though many jobs these days, teachers and doctors, you may feel that. But librarians play a part in that too. And this is what so many people, again, don't understand about the closures is that as part of social infrastructure, like the youth club I mentioned, they offer so much more. These aren't repositories for books. Of course, this is how they started, but they're so much more than that. And yet, just to throw out some bleak statistics, during 2018, 130 public libraries closed in the country. That's dreadful, isn't it? Which was a net loss of 127 And spending on libraries fell by £30 million the year before, £66 million. Sorry to drag the conversation down, but it's worth throwing these sobering statistics out. hasn't closed any yet, No, we haven't closed any for a long, long time. There was only one hour library I can think of. I can't remember when that was before I started, I think. But we're doing quite well in 2017-18 statistics. So Wandsworth achieved some of the highest number of issues in London. So Wandsworth, very lucky, we're sort of bucking the trend. We're doing quite well here, as opposed to some of the rest of the country. I can't imagine not having a library to go mm. to. I think this is where libraries are really needed. And I think in urban areas, they still perform such a wonderful, wonderful job. And luckily, around here, they still are. 
I have moved to the countryside. And what is so dreadful, I mean, my nearest little seaside town has a lovely state-of-the-art library and it's a specially dementia-friendly library as well. So it's truly inclusive for everybody. However, all the tiny little branch libraries in the little villages and the library vans seem to be closing so rapidly. In fact, I am in a fortnight going to open a very small village community library run by volunteers because there's so many people without the transport or without the mobility to get themselves many miles to the nearest big library. And it's all these little libraries that I don't know whether in future they will simply have to depend on volunteers. But again, what if you're bedbound, how wonderful it must be to have a kindly library van come around once a week. And I know when my mum was very ill, they were so clever. They knew exactly which books to come into her flat and offer her, you know, the really scandalous ones. (laughs) (laughs) Even when I don't think she could even, after a long time, actually properly read them. She didn't have the concentration or the intellectual ability anymore. But she liked them being delivered and she liked having a good chat about them. And they were still serving the purpose. Yeah, and we talked a lot about kids, obviously, but it is also so important for those who are on their own as well and stitching communities together. And you've mentioned a lot about online, allowing people to get online who perhaps can't, who are cut off, whether physically or in terms of comms and how they interact with the rest of the neighbourhood. And yes, to think that the mobile libraries are going or in the rural areas, people are getting cut off. It's awful. Yes. And it's not also sustainable to have volunteers running the libraries. There are tens of thousands of volunteers and that's a big trend as well. All these things are the... uh, But you still need people with some kind of expertise to give advice at the very least and to help select the appropriate books for the sort of customers that would be wanting them. So... It just seems so sad. I have noticed I have not yet met another writer, and I know quite a lot, who didn't live in their libraries as children. Because even the most affluent home, you can't keep up with a child who in the summer holidays could read a book a day. Libraries are desperately important. No, and young mums or young parents, whatever their background, where are you going to go with your little toddlers or your babies? Yes. You go into any library and one of the first things you'll hear, in, during the day at least, is that group of parents with young kids, again, forging those imaginations Quite. or experiences. And meeting quite naturally, whereas if you go particularly to meet other people, you go a bit self-conscious or a bit shy and think, well, maybe not today. But if you've got a purpose for going there, yeah, I think it works a treat. And there are also sort of contradictions in that, in the sense that it's a very individual thing to go into a library often and to be sat there reading etc and we have this idea that libraries are hushed places whereas actually as we know from today they're full of hubbub they're full of yes the sort of bookworm kind of noises and noises off of of the community at large which is quite magical Jacqueline you mentioned you have a number of books <laughs> and I've read in your biog that you have over 20,000 can that be right when I moved two, three years ago, though I was moving to a bigger house, I did think, this is ridiculous, I have to downsize a bit. 
it was very painful indeed. And I kept sneaking in more and more. I've still got oh, about 12,000, I would say, <laughs> maybe more. <laughs> and I have got books in every room. I have a big sitting room. I mean, you see, this is Girl from Council Estate. Yes. So it's only quite recently I've had a, a really biggish house. And for me, it's not the joy of showing off my house. It's the joy of having enough space for my books. And in the living room, all the way down one wall, from floor to ceiling, there's wonderful, wonderful books. And that's where all my modern hardback novels are. And then in the conservatory, I've got heaps and heaps and heaps of paperbacks because I thought if people are sort of relaxing in the sunshine, if they're coming to stay, I don't mind people borrowing a paperback. They can just pick one off the shelf and I won't mind. I'm much more protective of my hardbacks. And then in the dining room, which is actually so grand, we don't dine there. We just have supper parties in the kitchen. But I have a big bookshop of my ultra special antiquarian books that I look at lovingly. I take out very, very carefully and look at and gloat (laughs) back in again. Upstairs, well, the bedroom's got heaps of books. There are spare bedrooms, a couple that have, I tried very hard to have in one where there were going to be probably females sleeping. There are sort of extra books about women novelists and all sorts of things that I thought they might like, but with one or two other quirky things, just in case there's somebody very different. And then in the other room, there are some slightly more masculine authors, but also loads of serendipity books and those sort of books you can pick up and just have a tiny browse in and put back again. So basically, wherever you go, you're surrounded by books. And then I have a big attic. I have enough for about 100 mad wives to live up there (laughs) in the attic. And there are many, many bookshelves up there with various sort of books that had just been hidden away. And of course, if you're a, a children's author and you write lots of books and you're lucky enough to be printed in, I think, about 40 different languages, you get all them sent to you as well. Which, And yet it seems churlish when they've bothered to send them just to chuck them out. And often I keep them just in case we might meet up with a child from the right sort of country, but they take up shell wow. space too. However, when in the 1960s and everybody was banning the bomb and scared of nuclear war, we were all told that the very best insulation was books. So I might be one of the very last people breathing on this earth. <laughs> 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 I'll let Stuart come in, <laughs> family and friends. Sounds <laughs> and like we'll a very, all hide very, away together. <laughs> very lovely bunker. <laughs> so you've kind of curated your dream library. I have, I have. And I mean, this is the way I always wanted it to be. 20 years ago, I lived in an extremely small terraced house. But it's amazing that nobody got killed going in there because there were piles of books along the narrow hallway everywhere. It was so frustrating because, of course, the very book you wanted to read was way at the bottom. You couldn't move for books. And I couldn't actually physically move because it was just too horrendous a task. 
when eventually I did move somewhere else, I think it took my very painstaking partner about three months of every single day moving box after box of books, which was ridiculous. But we got there in the end. Well, it sounds amazing. And Stuart, do you have a very organised sort of catalogued home and life outside the library it, it starts off like that i tried to keep the vintage classics together or the biographies and the children's classics or any cookbooks that i have together i try to categorize them but when you start picking something i must read that and you start a pile and a pile and a pile it grows and then trying to put it back in the place where the other collection of that book is it doesn't always work out that way I have quite a small flat. I have this book pile syndrome as well. Everything, every clear surface, a pile of books soon sprouts up on it. Much to the chagrin of my partner as well. He finds it very disgruntled. Who I'm tidy, but he just thinks it's a bit of a mess, really. I do enjoy it, like Jackie. My idea of decoration is uh, bookshelves. There was a great book of essays by Anne Fudderman called Ex Libris as well, and it's about books and book lovers and couples merging their book collections, like do you do it, do you not do it, like people merging their CDs and their films, and there's just wonderful bits in there about book collecting and book reading and do you snap the spine or do you leave it face down, do you use a bookmark, the do's and don'ts of book readers, book lovers. And I always felt that my idea of books, an Egyptian way of a tomb with uh, all my books around me, no, no gold or jewels, but it would be books for me. I find it very unnerving, this whole idea of merging, though. I mean, no one could love my dear one more, but I haven't merged my books no. yet. I don't think I ever could. <laughs> In fact, my daughter, and again, I mean, I'm the world's worst bore about my lovely daughter, and yet... If she wants to borrow a book, of course I always let her. I always remember that she bothered it. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> a couple of months later I say, did you enjoy that book? Mm. <laughs> she'll bring it back. Are you quite reverential then with the books themselves or are you you're someone who breaks the spine and no, I don't turns the, the corners? That is the worst sound <laughs> ever. And it's very difficult because some books are so badly bound nowadays and some are so enormous that you literally grapple with them Mm -hmm. to try and keep them open. I think the best published books available now are Persephone books because Mm -hmm. they are beautifully published and they open up. They're quite fat paperbacks with beautiful pale grey covers, but you open them up and then they stay open. You don't have to sort of hold them down flat. Mm -hmm. But I am kind to books. I don't turn down corners. Mm -hmm. And I have tried once or twice quite self-consciously when it's a book that I own for research which isn't even precious to take a pencil and try and mark it but after about three pages I feel I can't I can't and don't do it anymore yes because they become living things quite quickly as soon as you open them there's nothing worse than buying a book if it's out of print online or nothing maybe not worse but when you open it up and you see that library card Mm -hmm. in the front it suddenly takes on a whole different aura, that book. I'm terrified by second-hand books. So there's a beautiful one I got of John Keats' letters. It says Cambridge, 1943 in it. I think what was happening at this time, this book was being read and researched. There's another beautiful one. I've got Charles Dickens' letters. And it's got the library, the card they used to put inside it. And the book was published the year my nan was born. But it was first taken out in 56 when my 
dad was born, my nan's son. So I love the history of it. Or if you find an inscription inside the book in a charity shop and who was Fred or who was Mavis and what has this book seen and where has it been? And then it's yours, you know, I don't mind the inscriptions on the fly leaf or anything like that. It's, it adds to the magic about the book, the mystery. Some people are, don't they like it in pristine, first mint condition, never been touched, never been opened, but I like the history of it. Well, it's infectious, your love of books, and that must also transfer onto the shelves here, all those mm -hmm. books here having lives of their own with the mm -hmm. local residents who are coming in and borrowing them. It's very special. Although sometimes librarians have to steal themselves. You hear tales of people discovering rashes of bacon mm -hmm. and bookmarks. Book bacon. <laughs> Yes, all sorts of grimy things. What's the worst um, thing you've ever found in a book? Um, I'm lucky. I, ha I haven't discovered anything too bad inside a book. I mean, I've been quite lucky so far, touch wood. Well, thank you both so much. And Jacqueline, maybe you would browse the shelves of okay. Roehampton Library? That would be great fun. Because part of the joy, of obviously, of libraries is the serendipity of mm -hmm. discovering you, something you weren't expecting to walk out the door with, borrowing something new or an old friend. But thank you both so much thank for you. joining us. Oh, it's been great fun thank talking. You. Thank you. Thank you. Now, let's see. Do we have any Noah Stretfields here? I we wonder. should do. Yes, I found... Look, look, look. Yep. I found... Bally shoes. Oh, and my goodness me, I truly didn't know this. This is the 75th anniversary edition. And there's a quote on the front. One of my all-time favourite books by a certain Jacqueline Wilson. I had absolutely no idea. But it is my favourite book. And in this, my favourite library, which was opened by Noel Stretfield, what oh. better book? Yeah. So I should borrow it. Yes. <laughs> Promise to bring it back. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for listening to Ex Libris. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe on your favourite listening app. That way you can keep up with this podcast and spread the word. Write an especially insightful review mentioning this episode and you might just win a signed copy of Jacqueline's wonderful latest novel, Dancing the Charleston. To find out more about the podcast's authors and venues, including loads of photos so you can see inside Roehampton Library and put faces to names, please visit our website, www.exlibrispodcast.com. You can also get updates from me on Twitter and Instagram. Find me at that Ben Holden. Ex Libris is produced by Chris Sharp and myself. Its music is composed by Adam Pleath. Ex Libris is brought to you in association with the Lightbulb Trust, which illuminates lives via literacy and learning, providing opportunities to shine. Thank you.